welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. God, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I will not mind me done. Okay, welcome to Sobriety 101, September 2015 episode. Um, <clears throat> we're <clears throat> back after finishing up the big book uh, sections on step three last time, and just to kind of go over what we've been doing so far. Um, we really like to start with page 77 in the white book and read the first few Paragraphs, the first three paragraphs of this little short reading. The volunteer can do that. I'm Lee Hey, Lee. How it works, the practical reality. This title is adapted from Chapter 5 of Alcoholics Anonymous entitled How It Works. The books Alcoholic Anonymous and 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, the 12 and 12, constitute the basic text of the original 12-step program. This section is not intended to be a comprehensive exposition of the steps. Our aim here is to try to get at the essential purpose of each step or group of steps so they can be readily put into action. The essay program is a program of action. Everything begins with sobriety. Without sobriety, there is no program of recovery. But without reversing the deadly traits that underlie our addiction, there is no positive and lasting sobriety. To recover from a life based on wrong attitudes, self-obsession, separation, false connection, blindness, and spiritual death requires a program of action that includes a fundamental change in attitude, character change, union, the true connection, self-awareness, and spiritual life. Working the principles of the steps as a new way of living has made this happen for us. No matter how well they are explained, understood, or believed, however, the steps mean nothing unless they are actually worked out in our thinking and living. The, 12, or the steps don't work unless we work them. Thank you, Lee. Okay, and we like to point out that um, there's that line that says, this section is not intended to be a comprehensive, a comprehensive exposition of the steps. Um, and it mentions the big book and the 12 and 12 as the basic texts of the original 12-step program. The uh, founder of SA, Roy K., um, did not have uh, an SA meeting to go to uh, or an SA program to work. So he went to AA after reading an article in Time magazine in 1974. And... Uh, he got uh, an AA sponsor, and he worked the 12 steps with the AA literature. Now, it turns out that in our fellowship, any conference-approved literature from AA is fellowship-approved for use in SA. And uh, so that means it's the group conscience of SA uh, to use AA literature as a guide for working the steps. Um, everything begins with sobriety. Um, without sobriety, there is no program of recovery. Um, we believe, uh, evidently, the book says that, that um, uh, we've got to get sober before we can begin um, to recover. Um, but that's only the beginning. And that to recover from a life based on all these things, wrong attitudes, self-obsession, separation, false connections, blindness, spiritual death. This is the word based 
is based is is related to the word basis, which is used in the big book in a very particular way, as we've just seen when we went went over the beginning of how it works in chapter five of the AA big book, starting on page sixty. Um, the word basis appears um, when it says on that basis we are almost always in collision with something or somebody even though our motives are good and um, if we want to know what basis they're referring to we have to read the previous sentence the first requirement for step three is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success so He's talking about a life run on the basis of self-will. And uh, that's pretty much what Roy describes here when he says a life based on wrong attitudes, self-obsession, separation, false connections, blindness, and spiritual death. That is the basis of self-will. Now, over on page 68, it uses the word basis again. It says, perhaps there is a better way we think so, for we are now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. And this idea of changing our basis for living is nothing new. It goes back thousands of years. Uh, somebody once said that if you hear these words and obey them, you are like one who builds his house on a foundation of a rock. And we know what happens. The storm comes, but the house is still standing. And if you hear these words and do not obey them, then you are like one who builds his house upon a foundation of sand. And the storm still comes, but this time the house does not stand. And so when he says, hear these words and obey them, he's talking about God's will. And, and so it's really the same basic message uh, that's been out there for thousands of years, but apparently some of us need to encounter it in this form um, before we're really willing to kind of pay attention to that and put it to use. So, so the third step is a decision, and it's a decision to change my basis for living from a basis of self-will to a basis of trusting and relying on God. Now, trusting and relying is often described in the following way. I watch a guy who's in a circus walk a tightrope, and he's an acrobat, and he can do backflips on the tightrope, and blah, 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 and he doesn't even have a safety net. And now he's going to push a wheelbarrow across the um, tightrope, and I see what he can do, and I believe that he can do it. But belief is different than trust, because trust means that I'll get in the wheelbarrow. And that's a whole different level uh, of trust and reliance. And so this is talking about to really change my basis for living. I have to act as if I trust. In fact, that's more important than the feeling. It, most Many people don't have that trust or that faith when they come here. But if, if they're willing to act as if they believe, if they are willing to do the experiment of finding out from someone who might know some things, you know, what would a person who really trusted God do in this situation? And then do it. And... Some incredible results uh, uh, often follow. So um, that's what we're about here. We're about changing our basis for living. And so the third step decision is a decision. It is not the... The decision is just the beginning. If I decide to move to California, well, I'm still in Memphis. If I decide to bake a cake... There's nothing to eat until I carry out the decision. And so the third step is the decision. 4 through 12 is how I carry it out. 
Joe and Charlie talk about, you know, there are three frogs on a log, and two of them decide to jump off. How many are left? And the answer is three, because they decided to jump off, but they haven't carried out the decision yet. Um, and, you know, somebody asks you, what step do you turn your will and life over the care of God? Uh, don't say step three. Because it's not it. You don't turn your will and life over the care of God in step three. You decide to do it. And you got to carry it out in the remaining steps. So when we got to page 63 at the bottom, after we talked about making the prayer, and then there was a paragraph that says some things we need to do before the prayer, and then there's a little promise that says this was only a beginning, though if honestly and humbly made, an effect, sometimes a very great one, was felt at once. Then it says, next, we lost out on a course of vigorous action. And this, it turns out, is going to be step four. Now, before we continue on in the big book, let's go back to the white book, because we read uh, step three in the white book, steps one, two, and three, before we... Um, uh, went to the big book. And this is, uh, I guess, a good way to go because we're going to try to look at the white book uh, and and use it as a guide. It, it says, this section is not intended to be a comprehensive exposition of the steps. Our aim here is to try to get at the essential purpose of each step or group of steps so that they can readily be put into action. The SA program is a program of action. Taking AA, an AA program uh, as a basis for our SA program. So this white book is going to tell us how uh, to apply this program to lust recovery. So before we even get to step four, uh, there's a section entitled Making the Wrongs Right, Steps 4 through 10. That's on page 97. So would you like to read? Sure. I'm Robert. Hey, Robert. Robert. Making the Wrongs Right, Steps 4 through 10. Toughest act in town. Sadly, many men and women with years of physical sobriety on 12-step programs never make their breakthrough into the heart of the program and true recovery. The biggest obstacle seems to be steps 4 through 10, the core substance of the program. It is these steps that seem to be the least realized in actual experience. When first exposed to these steps, many of us balked. The process is rightly wrong. is foreign to it. The process of writing wrongs is foreign to us. It seems light years away in another dimension. We can't connect with it. We either dismiss it out of hand or say it to ourselves. I'm doing just I'm doing fine just like I just like I am. Blindness and denial. It's as though we will go to any lengths to avoid doing what is required for our own healing. When some member of the, uh, see that when some members see that such persons are captive to external rather than externals rather than having an awakening to life. They have been overheard to say, "The sobriety is all there is. I want no part of it." There are a few things so pitiful as as a board of spiritual life. The amazing thing is that we can give the appearance of life even though we are dead. There is one sure way to get more than mere physical sobriety. And that is by coming out of denial, seeing our wrongs and writing them under God, making steps 4 through 10 a way of life. The result is a new life. And with us sexaholics, it is doubtful that we can even maintain sexual sobriety without this, although many of us try. The more we are willing to listen to the experience and success of others, the more faith we get in this process. We ask for willingness to try this path, even though we may feel sure it is not for us. Once we do try it, we're sold. Okay, thank you, Robert. Thanks, Robert. So, talking about the result is a new life, and this is changing our basis for living. Um, Lauren, what you got? There was something back there. I don't remember exactly what it was. Um, Hmm. 
باشید says he always learns things the hard way. Some details are changed to protect the other party. The people in our little community have to rely on a woman who runs the neighborhood hardware store to get their local mail. Everyone complains about her sour disposition and intimidation. Knowing how I want to break out into resentment every time I see her, I usually give up the right to do so before walking in and hold my peace. But the other day, she baited me again, and instead of saying nothing, I challenged her with some heat behind my words. And of course, she promptly read me off. Before she had gotten the last word out, I got loud, told her that that was the last time I wanted to hear from her big mouth, and stomped out. I hadn't really lost control, I thought, and knew I was fully justified, feeling pretty smug about the whole thing, until three days later... When the incident kept playing back in my mind, each time it came up, I'd replay the scene as though I were in court, pleading my case before a judge, winning every time. But it persisted until I was willing to ask for willingness to look at it honestly. I concluded that my disturbance indicated something was wrong with me, that over and above whatever she had said, I had done something wrong. I had retaliated, trying to hit back. I could have challenged her without doing so. I had found a pretext to reject her and push her away, that old pattern that has plagued me all my life. So only I knew that I was wrong and that the cause of my disturbance was me. I had been binging on food and television ever since it happened for no apparent reason. I couldn't even pray without the scene coming back. What I discovered was that I could not get rid of that memory and that I didn't. if I didn't make it right, I'd have to keep on covering it, coating it over, or drowning it out with something. I asked for courage, surrendered my fear and pride, went back to the store, and told the woman I had been wrong in yelling at her. Unexpectedly, she looked at me with pained eyes and tried to explain. Instead of becoming angry, defensive, or abusive, as I had feared, she was broken and vulnerable, and I was moved to compassion. Since I can seldom express this emotion because I'm a love cripple, I knew that for my sake I had to take the action, despite my natural inhibition. Thank God I had been taught to do what did not come naturally by those who had gone before me in the program. I put my hand on her arm, and that connection drew me to her. It broke the impasse of fear anger and pride within me. I even wanted to embrace her. Tears welled in her eyes as she glanced at me shamefully, hung her head, then looked up again, as though she was just as surprised as I at the gift of life flowing between us. In that timeless moment where we looked at each other, each knowing he or she had been wrong, each forgiving the other, there was spiritual union, a most marvelous and transcendent experience, a fullness of glory and great joy. I left the store feeling transformed, full of light, and a great liberating energy. Thank you, Zachary. Thanks, Zachary. All right. So, um, does that ring a bell for anybody? Ever, ever have somebody that you just can't stand? I found that sentence or two that resonated with me and it totally dovetails in with that reading 
Um, so the, this is on 97 in the white books. Is um, the process of righting wrongs is foreign to us. It seems light years away in another dimension. We can't connect with it. And um, yeah, I remember kind of somewhat early on coming into the program of um, having a similar incident that this guy in the reading had with the, I guess it was a clerk or something. Um, I had a similar incident in my work where I'd lashed out and treated a guy badly and um, been a jerk. And um, the rea- I knew that I'd done something wrong, but I didn't know what to do about it. And um, had to have a lot of input from my sponsor and, because it just wasn't going to come to me. And so that sense of the process of writing wrongs is foreign to us. You know, I just wasn't going to come up with the conversation um, or this, much less the solution on my own. But, um, yeah, I had to approach that guy again and own up to the fact that I'd been unprofessional, I'd been rude. And um, and likewise, you know, the reaction, his reaction and my experience was outside of what I went in expecting. And um, it was a good experience. And as much as it was not fun, I don't, it's not one of those things that I go into life now, I want to piss somebody off today so that I can make things right with them. But um, at the same time, it's, it was an experience. It was like, yeah, I can do that again if I have to, and um, and and not just if I have to. It's like I don't want to not deal with it the next time it happens because it does happen. I, mean, I still slip into self-will, and I still bring my fears and my, um, you know, yeah, self-will into relationships and um, my character defects, and I'll step on toes. Hopefully less than I'm used to, but I'll still do it. And, um, you know, basically commit wrongs that have to be, that I have to go back and address. And, um, if nothing else, based on those experiences, I'm willing to do it. And I'm glad that the process of writing wrongs doesn't seem foreign to me. I don't necessarily need input from anybody else. And, Currently, you know, I know when I do it and I know how to address it now. And um, it's the right thing to do and I get a good, um, I don't know, the response has always been, has always been good. It's been helpful for me and the person involved. So that's what I got right now. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. Steve Psychoholic. Um, This always reminds me of of something that Sandy B., an alcoholic, uh, who passed away this past year, once said he had, uh, I think, very close to 50 years, if not already 50 years when he died. And um, he said um, he had had this um, relative or in-law or something that he really couldn't stand very similar to how how the woman is described in this uh, and once he and his wife were making a list to, to send out invitations for a family event I can't remember what kind it was a marriage or a graduation or something like that and his wife you know he had 20 years of sobriety at this point you know he worked the steps and he was speaking and blah 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 um but the uh the uh you know his his wife brought up this this woman you know as as a name for the list and he was like oh don't don't invite her she's blah 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 and he just listed off her character defects and his wife looked up and looked at him and said well she only acts like that when you're around <laughs> and he was kind of like and so that made him look at the whole thing differently. He began to inventory it on himself and pray, and, and, and he began to treat her differently. And once he began to treat her differently, he saw her differently, 
And over time, he developed a, a relationship with her that, you know, was a very meaningful relationship to him. And that always made an impression on me. Um, you know, the other thing that they talk about here is, is you know, that like Lauren mentioned, that surprising spiritual experience in a hardware store, was it? You know, I mean, it's like, but but the thing about the spiritual experience from that I have experienced, you know, in my in my story anyway, this seems to me to be kind of a principle, and that is the spiritual experience that I've never had is waiting in things that I've never been willing to do, and I will never know that I have missed it until I find it. And and that 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 um, happened for me, you know, uh, back when a friend of mine, uh, you know, got convicted of a of a crime that sent him to prison for 15 years. And he 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 was, um, you know, I was supposed to be in that courtroom. I knew it because I was taught by my sponsors and by the program, you know, to be of service and. I knew that I would had been spared uh, going to prison, and that I needed to remember that, and that um, here was somebody who was probably going to prison, and he was a year sober, and uh, he had done everything he could since uh, the the uh, you know since his uh, bottom since he got arrested, and. And he was looking at 15 years. And I went out there knowing that I had to be there. I thought I was going to be of help to him, you know, in some way. And when I got there, I realized that the only thing I could do for him was be there and let him know I was there, you know, silently. I couldn't say anything. I couldn't fit. There's no way I could fix it. Um, and I did that, and it changed me. It was a very powerful spiritual experience for me. And my whole attitude towards my own life changed after that day. And so it's impressed on me a lot. I could have found a thousand reasons not to go. Down, you know, I was it's 60 miles away and, and you know, um, you know, they might, you know, whatever. I mean, my mind can cook up so many things, to reasons to be afraid, and, and it was not a comfortable place for me to be. Um, but I knew I needed to be there. And if I had accepted one of those reasons and not gone, then I would have missed that experience, and I would have never known. I would have missed that life-changing experience. And so for me, this this idea, like Lauren said, that it's surprising what happens when I do this process. And that's why the action is so important. You know, it doesn't say, here are the steps we interpreted, which are suggested as a program of recovery, or here are the steps we believed in, or here are the steps that we memorized, or anything like that. It says, here are the steps we took. And, and it's these actions that put me in a place to receive what God's trying to give me. You know, that's what truly changes my basis for living. You know, it, it's not the... You know the acts themselves. Going to a hardware store and, and 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 saying you know I was wrong to somebody isn't isn't a formula for a spiritual experience. But when I'm doing those things, I I become awake to God's you know presence in the whole thing. And and uh, so for me that's a very powerful thing, and I don't want to forget it. And that's why I, I, I guess I need to talk about it. And that's one thing. And, and then also, I like to be in touch with you guys because when you guys have similar experiences, that helps me remember that truth. You know, it's not about what um, it's not about what um, happens in the world. You know, whether I get a job or don't get a job, or whether I go to prison or I don't go to prison. Or whether, you know, my loved one lives or dies or whatever. That's not what makes or breaks my life. It, 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 
It is my spiritual, it was, is my basis for living, and it's my connection with God, either its presence or its lack. That is what determines everything. And so, anyway, for me, that's a pretty good reason to keep carrying out my third step decision today. You know, it was a decision to turn my will and my life over the care of God. I get my life one day at a time. I can't carry out that decision other than one day at a time. I haven't lived my whole life yet. I can't turn it all over until I, I can turn, I can turn over what I have. And that's always now. It's always today. So, um, that's it for me. Anybody else got anything to share before we continue? Uh, I'm Robert. I'm a psychologist. Hey, Robert. Hey, Robert. Um, that really resonates with me uh, about giving God, your, making a decision to give give God your, turn your life over to God, as you know, one day at a time. Uh, here recently, I have, I've had a relapse, and uh, the thing that I keep hearing from everybody, the, the thing that seems to be ringing in my ears, is to stay close to God. Live one day. This is the second time I've heard this today. As a matter of fact, live one day at a time. That's all I need to do right now. And so today, I got up and I did what I need to do. I went to a meeting this morning, and then my aunt needed someone to take her and do some shopping, so I went and took her shopping. And it was something I wouldn't normally do, but I really enjoyed it. I learned something out of it, and. uh, and now I'm here, and I'm still hearing the same message. Stay close to God and turn your life over to Him one day at a time. So, uh, I'm glad to be here, and I'm uh, looking forward to hearing more. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Thanks Robert. Robert. Okay. So... Well, you haven't read yet. I haven't read yet either, but I've been talking pretty much, so. Yeah, you have. I'll read. <laughs> Page 100. Yes, sir. Lauren, natural law. Now let's look at what was happening in this encounter and try to derive the spiritual laws that work here in our common experience. One, we do something wrong. The reason we do it doesn't matter. The wrong in the other person doesn't matter. Two, there's an immediate and, and inevitable effect within us. It disturbs our equilibrium. It throws us out of kilter. Three, we don't like to feel disturbed. It's uncomfortable, so we instinctively try to quiet the disturbance. Four, our first try is denial. We try to justify and rationalize to ourselves. Five, when that doesn't provide relief, We're left with only two other choices, either to treat the distress or treat the cause of the distress. Six, the only way we can treat the cause of our distress and right the wrong is to make amends to the person we wronged. Seven, as soon as we acknowledge our wrong, we start feeling better, and when we make the amends, we're set free. The tyranny of the memory and the guilt are gone. We feel free, released. And if the other person is forgiving, he himself is free, and there is spiritual union with that person, as in the above story. In relating this experience in a meeting, the member remarked afterwards, This formula fixes me faster than anything. Instant success. The words, I was wrong, which I was forever trying to extort from others, become, when I make them mine, the most wonderful words in the world. They bring peace to me. How can something that felt so bad turn into such great good? Notice the same negative spiritual process at work in the addiction, part one, comes back into play every time we do something wrong. We can't get around it. For every wrong action, there's a negative reaction within us. I'm not only my own worst enemy, 
I'm the only real enemy I've got. What I do is what I get. Excuse me. What I do is what I get. I'm going to pass. I'm late to call it. Technically speaking, the man in the bus story was making a 10-stat Bittardi amends. The point of telling this story here is that looking at ourselves and making amends embodies the principle underlying all of, this, all of set four through ten. The entire heart of the program has us working on ourselves. The key to recovery and spiritual growth is the righting of our wrongs. It dissolves our guilt, sets us free, and energizes us with joy and strength. Writing our wrongs thus become the single most powerful tool for, for success and spiritual growth and recovery. Why? One, it gets the wrong out of the way so God can work in us. Two, taking such repeated action begins to loosen the hold over us. Begins to loosen the hold over us of one defect at a time. No wonder this is an exercise we dread the most. It's strong medicine. And most of us prefer some easier, softer way. So we might as well put our hearts to it and begin working these steps in earnest. There's no way around them if we want to recover. We might ask, how is that righting wrongs becomes freeing and healing? What's really happening in this process? At best, all we can offer as answer or analogy since our inner reality doesn't lend itself to precise description. Let's think back on the scene in the hardware store. Doing wrong to the woman produced a self-destructive effect in the man. Making the wrong right not only counteracted that negative effect, but created an impulse of positive energy that was healing and creative. Thus, if for every wrong there's a negative reaction within us that takes away life, for every act of doing right, there's a positive reaction that produces life. This law is of our spiritual biology plays such an important part in our recovery that we might break it out as a separate step. Took the actions of love to improve our relations with others. But this fruitation, fruitation, fruition, fruition, thank you, cannot begin until we have made the great turnaround in steps four through ten. More about this later. Okay. So, so to review, one is we do something wrong, two, it disturbs our equilibrium, three, we justify and rationalize, then when that doesn't work, we either just treat, treat the distress or the cause. The only way to do the cause is to take the actions, program actions, and that's how I get free. And until I do it, I don't even know what free is. You know, I mean, it's simple. It's like I compare it sometimes to riding a bicycle. I mean, I've ridden a bicycle thousands of times. I know what it feels like. But there was a time in my life where I had not yet ridden a bicycle, or I'd ridden it, but was training wheels or something, or a tricycle or whatever. And that was fun, but I really couldn't imagine. I, I probably tried, but I wasn't able to know what the experience of riding a bike was like until the first time, you know, that we kicked those training wheels and I really stayed up. I think there were probably a couple of times where I wasn't ready, and I was like, eh, and fell over, and we put the train wheels back on, but I eventually learned how to do it. And um, once once I experienced it, I don't need anybody to, to explain it to me, but before I experience it, there's no way it can be explained to me. And that's why the action is so important. And that's what I, I hear these seven uh, points saying, is that you got to make the amends, you know. And, and I am so good at philosophizing about something instead of doing it. It's like 
making a decision or a resolution to do something or having the intention of doing it something or imagining doing something provides some sort of temporary relief. And so then I don't do the something because I'm letting relief govern my actions. You know, I just, you know, that's my primary purpose. I want to get relief. I want to feel the way I want to feel. Whereas the new basis for living isn't about me. It's about living the way I'm supposed to live. What does that even mean? Well, that's a question i got to find an answer to. And just like Robert was saying, you know, i got to find the answer to it today. What does it mean today? I don't have to figure it out for the rest of my life. And that's why all the philosophizing, you know, doesn't really help. Because it's always about the big, grand, you know, problem. And the simple little things that I need to do today. You know, do make this phone call. Do make this amends. Don't, you know, act out. Don't look at this image. Don't think that thought. These are simple things. So, when I do it, I don't feel as good as when I think grandiose thoughts. But um, it works a whole lot better. In the long run, I feel better. I feel free. So, that'll hush for now. Lawrence is all it. Yeah. Um, the hardest thing was acknowledging my wrong. For somebody who has spent their entire life keeping keeping a running track list of everybody else's wrongs, there's some reason it's hard for me to acknowledge my own. I think that I probably expected everybody else to be keeping the same long list and assuming that they were entitled to some something beyond beyond an apology. That's kind of how I functioned. You know, it's kind of I knew everybody else's wrongs towards me or whatever. And if they had come to me and apologized, I don't know how I would have responded. Um, probably something along the lines of, "What else you got to make it right?" You know, besides your words or whatever. So when showing up and just saying, "Hey, you know, I was wrong to do this or that, and selfish or whatever," when when somebody kind of dismissed it, said, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> or whatever and moved on I think I was expecting something worse I think I was expecting them to lash me like I would have lashed them or lashed myself in the same situation and um and so it was a, a freeing thing when when I didn't get that expected response <clears throat> I think it's been difficult for me when uh, uh, I have at times readily been able to go and ask forgiveness and make an amends, but it's been, been it's been equally disturbing when the other person does not um, receive that amends that I make because I tend to want to try to keep making the amends over and over and over again until they accept it until they forgive me but I have had to learn that uh, I can't ma- I can't make a choice for them I can't I can't affect how they feel about me uh, one way or the other I can just do what I need to do to, to make it right and leave the results up to God and that's been a very difficult thing for me uh, especially when it comes to family members so those are my thoughts about that thanks I come from a family where we're all very forgiven. And this is how it goes. I forgive you. I don't forget that I've forgiven you. Remember that time I forgave you? Okay. I'll do my will. That's how it works. And um, we're all very good at that. And 
So, you know, I mean, it's a quote-unquote kind of amends. You know, I, I, I often made amends. Made amends. I went and said, I'm sorry. And it was just like Robert was saying. I was saying, I'm sorry. Not because I... I didn't know how to, to, to genuinely say, I'm sorry, I wanted you, I wanted to change how you felt about me. You know, and, and I just remember sometimes it was almost like I'd yell at people, I'm sorry! You know, it's like, well, why are you yelling if you're sorry? <laughs> uh, I mean, I know that compulsion to want to say it over and over and over again if they, until they, you know, forgive. But, you know, that's all I'm doing is trying to control that. And it doesn't work. Um, and that's one of the reasons I had to be willing to follow directions because I thought I already knew what making amends was like. I thought I already knew how to say I'm sorry to people. You know, I do, I do that all the time. You know, my problem is, you know, I can't stick up for myself, blah, blah, blah. You know, I had all these ideas about what I need. And that wasn't working. When I got so broken that I began to follow directions, and I'd start to argue with this guy. This guy was a, was a um, my NA sponsor, was my first sponsor, had just gotten out of treatment. I was arguing with him about something, and he said, "You know, how long have you been clean?" And I said, 90 days." He says, "Well, I've been clean for two years. Now, why would I want to listen to you explain something to me?" Is that is that why you asked me to sponsor you so you could explain stuff to me? And it's just look, look. If you want to explain stuff to me, I don't have time for you. Now, if you want to try and follow some directions so that you can stay clean, well, then I do have time for you. And I was shut up, and I was just kind of like this guy. This guy had like a an eighth grade education or something. He wasn't going to listen to my BS. You know, and that's exactly what I needed. Because all of the things that I knew contained these things that I was absolutely wrong about and I couldn't tell the difference from the things that I was absolutely right about. You know, and 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 it was killing me thinking that I knew. So, um for a long time, I just went to the place to where I don't know anything. Everything, no matter how obvious it is, and even if everybody says it is and it's staring me right in the face, well, okay, I think it's this, you know, but I'm not going to be sure because, you know, if I'm sure of anything, it could kill me. And that was the right way to be for a while, I think. I was so scared I was going to die. And that really got used to that. <laughs> and I'm grateful. Thanks, Stacy. Shall we take a break? Sure. All right. Now we're back. Go for it. Sir. Zachary, I'm a sexologist. Recovery. Another reason why righting our wrongs must be part of our recovery is that this is how we reverse the deadly separation at work in the addictive process and restore union. To the extent we surrender and stop practicing our defects, righting the wrongs they cause, we experience union within ourselves, wholeness, union with others, and with God. Only true union fills the void our sick connections we're trying to satisfy. But finding God or finding spiritual union with another is not the result of a search at all, but of a moral house cleaning. As an AA old-timer has said, when we uncover and discard our wrong attitudes and actions, we discover our true selves, others, and God. God is not something added in from the outside. He is someone we discover on the inside when we clear away the wreckage. Uncovering ourselves is what makes union possible. How can we be whole if part of us is hiding from ourselves? Thus, the grand equation for getting well and filling the great void is at the heart of our lives is uncover, then discard, then discover. Anybody know where that's from? 
He just mentions an AA old timer. It's Chuck C. Have you ever heard of a new pair of glasses? Yeah. Yeah. Chuck C. was a um, AA guy. He got sober in, I think, 1946. And um, he gave a talk in the 70s uh, in California that was very famous. It was a weekend retreat, and they transcribed it. And that's the book, A New Pair of Glasses. The, the name of the... Uh, the name of the retreat was something like practicing these principles in all our affairs or something. But it was just him talking. You can get get it on CD, uh, six CDs. And the interesting thing about it is that that Chuck C was Roy's grand sponsor. You know, it was Chuck's sponsor's sponsor. Roy's sponsor was a guy named Clancy I, and he's still alive. Clancy has got like 56 years or something. And he's very well known. He's going to be in Georgia in a couple of months as part of a big AA thing. But there's, a, there's something in the, uh, in the beginnings booklet where it talks about the history of SA uh, that Roy went to Chuck C. to talk to him because he was thinking about starting a fellowship. For, for S members and 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 at first Chuck was shaking his head and saying poo-pooing the idea and then he stopped in mid-sentence as if he was receiving some kind of information and he changed his tune and said you know you know you don't need a partner because Roy's question was Doc, uh, Bill had this partner Dr. Bob and they started the fellowship and he was like I can't find a partner you know, should I should I get a partner, or or should I you know um, just do it myself? And so Roy told him, you don't need a partner. God is your partner. But Chuck told him that, and that's that that led to. And, and Roy says, little did Chuck know that if he had uh, nixed the idea, then you know it, it, it would it wouldn't have happened because Roy gave him that much weight. Uh, so our whole being here. And it goes back to Chuck C. Anyway, so sorry, I just wanted to. I'm the, sorry, on the S fellowship. Yeah, Roy was Roy was going to AA. That's right. And he was like, you know, I need to to start a fellowship for 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 this. I mean, that was part of the twelfth step, right? I got my people confused. Oh, okay. And Chuck was was his sponsor. His grand sponsor. Grand sponsor. Yeah. I switched it, and that's why I was like, I'm I got it. Ignore me. When Bill died in 1971, Chuck was sort of like the spiritual grandfather of AA after Bill died. You know, and he did. He lived. I think he lived till about 79 or something like that. So, but I highly recommend Chuck um, Chuck's CDs. If you want to have some fun? <laughs> he's he's funny. All right. Steps one, two, and three bring us to the point where we are able to start this process. And once begun, the healing work of steps four through ten becomes a way of life. Each cycle of awareness, surrender, and discovery produces growth, union, and insight, which bring about more awareness, surrender, and discovery. The road narrows as we go, but since there is always more revealed within us to discard, our sight improves and the vista becomes incredibly more wonderful and fulfilling. Many of us identify with the excitement of one member's discovery. Righting my wrongs is where the connection is, so every time I surrender my desire to lust or resent and take God's deliverance, I've experienced union with God. Can you believe that? I can't, but it's true. And every time I surrender my desire to judge or condemn another person or hang on to self-centered fear, every time I'm doing what I have to do to stay comfortable, I'm getting united. What a gift. And whenever I fail to and do the wrong uncovering it to another and making amends not only make it right but produce union too this has to be the most unbelievable thing in the universe 
Having now come to the end of self and surrendered in the first three steps, we are ready to begin taking the stairs upward toward recovery, healing, and growth from step four onward. These actions bring us face-to-face with the dreaded monster we've been running from, ourselves. They encourage and enable us to see the uglies within so that we can become willing to change. Every liability will turn out to be an avenue of grace. And like a magic looking glass, they first help us to see ourselves and then, as we gain courage, help us jump through and enter that new kingdom we could never know before. Now is when we start unloading that burden of wrongs and guilt we had been heaping on our backs. From out of great despair comes true surrender which releases within us the desire to be good and make things right with our fellow man. If we cannot bring ourselves to do this, we have surely not yet passed through the gate of step three. Better to stop and go no further, lest, in pretending to work the other steps, we seal over our wrongs like an infected cyst. No one seems to be able to make the third step commitment while knowingly holding on to his or her wrongs. But just as surely as our wrongs are what brought us to despair, so our surrender to God and others in our wrongs will open the doorway to that great release and transformation that await us. Healing takes place from the inside out, and we come to see the truth in the ancient proverb, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. We are the doctor in this soul surgery, and we perform the operation without any painkillers. Thank God we're not alone. Those who have gone before us have put themselves under the knife and have come out into the bright sunlight of a new life, emerging to know themselves, others, and God in the very beauty of life itself. This is our finest odyssey. Experiencing an awakening while following these simple directions. Every liability will turn out to be an avenue of grace. There's a bit in the AA Big Book that kind of expands on that. If you look on page 124... Says Henry Ford. Anybody been to the Tuesday night meeting lately? Y'all still say that? They did the last time I went there. It's been a while. You want to read it, Lauren? Sure. Henry Ford once made a wise remark to the effect that experience is the thing of supreme value in life. That is true only if we, if one is willing to turn the past to get account. We grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. The alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset of the family, and frequently it is almost the only one. This painful past may be of infinite value to other families still struggling with their problem. We think each family which has been relieved owes something to those who have not, and when the occasion requires, each member of it should be only too willing to bring former mistakes, no matter how grievous, out of, their, out of their hiding places. Showing others who suffer how we were given help is the only thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. The very thing. Yeah. Is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. 
And so every liability will turn out to be an avenue of grace. That's a good, good way to put it. Anybody have any experience with that? What I'm looking for? You know, I went to Murfreesboro one time to tell my story. They invited me down there. And there was about 15 people in the room. And I told my story and I got very, very real about what I had done. At that time, I was working on my amends. And uh, I had an amends to my youngest stepson. He was one of my victims. And I, the letter, you know, I had a letter that I, in my pocket that I had worked on and I hadn't sent it yet, but uh, my sponsor had asked me to take this letter and to read it to three or four men that I knew who were in recovery who had been sexually abused when they were children and, and to ask them for their feedback. And so I had done that and gotten this letter in pretty good shape um, and it was still very heavy for me. I got very emotional, you know, when, when I read it. But it basically said, you know, I was I was a horrible stepfather. You didn't deserve any of that. You should have gotten love and protection and guidance, not abuse. You know, betrayed your trust. And uh, and so I did this, and and I read that. You know, I kind of told my story, and at the end, I read I read that, and. I, I got very, very emotional, and I don't know if there was a dry eye in the room anywhere, but there was one guy who was particularly tore up about it. Now, he was just over there just like, you know, snot running down his nose. You know, he was, he was so emotional. And so after the meeting, he comes up to me, and and he's still emotional, and he says, I was abused by my stepfather when I was the same age as Stephen. And I've always wanted to receive a letter like that from my stepfather. And that was a spiritual experience. I tell you what. It's the worst thing I've ever done. God's turning it into an avenue of grace. Somehow that man got some healing from me taking these actions. Now, who can choreograph that? Who could have predicted that? How can you know that that would be the result of taking those actions? You can't. And I, nor can I describe the way that it affected me, the way that it changed me. Again, that was a life-changing moment. I mean, it, it was a burning bush experience. So, and the next day, that man called me up and asked me to sponsor him. And I was uh, I was profoundly changed by that, and and that so this passage to me is really beautiful, and uh, you know cling to the thought that in God's hands a dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it you can uh, uh, avert death and misery for them. You know getting getting um, forgiven is one thing. But being given a, a job like that, an assignment like that, where, you know, that's beyond, you know, mere redemption. You know, that, that that's restoration. That's the, the prodigal son story. You know, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't have to. You know, sl- uh, you know, be a servant when he got back to his father's home. He got to restore the sonship. And uh, you know, that's just beyond belief. So anyway, you know, this is a pretty good deal, and I and I think I'm gonna give it another 24 hours. God's will is a good deal. Thanks. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve.
Everybody got anything? That might be a good place to close for today. Next time we can go on with step four. Look at the white book on step four and then go back to the big book on step four. That'll keep us busy for a while. All right. Shall we circle up and close? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Good to see you, man. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Good to see you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.